Welcome to this episode of Safe Home Podcast for struggling teens and their families finding their healing path. I'm Beth Syverson, a mom of an 18-year-old son, Joey, who's been dealing with drug addiction, depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation for several years. I'm walking beside him as he struggles with his recovery while I work on my own personal growth and healing. Our guest this episode is Don McCord, who recently published a book called Chasing Carson, A Family's Journey Through Adolescence, Addiction, and Recovery. Her son Carson is just a little bit older than Joey, and he shared some of Joey's travails with substance abuse, though he has different drugs of choice than Joey has used. Carson ended up recovering through a wilderness therapy program in Georgia. And just like our family, Dawn is helping uh, other parents who have struggling teens. She and I are both going to be working for the new parenting support group, Other Parents Like Me, which you can hear more about in episode 19. So that's how we met through Other Parents Like Me. And it's so great to have another parent who totally understands what we've been going through as a family these last few years. So welcome to Safe Home, Dawn. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thank you for being here. I think that it's great to let other parents know that it's okay to talk about this stuff. Oh, absolutely. I think there's a lot of stigma still and people are like, oh, I can't tell anybody, but well, I don't know, you and I are blabbing it to the whole world. <laughs> so maybe that will give people courage to, to share, you know, maybe open up with another friend or somebody else or a support person. Yes. So, so important to get that support. Well, I just finished reading your a wonderful book and I appreciate your honesty and your vulnerability and your son's story is, whew, it's pretty harrowing. It it's is pretty harrowing. I'll let you tell some details about it, but how, how did you get Carson's buy-in? Is he also wanting to help other kids? Uh, how did you get him to say, okay, yeah, you can tell my story in a book. Yes. So what we did is when we were in lockdown, so I was off work for nine weeks. I'm a hairdresser and we live in Indianapolis, Indiana. And we had just gotten Carson moved to sober living in Utah after he was in Georgia for wilderness for 12 weeks. And I just felt called to start writing our journey down. So then we finally got to see him in August of 2020. And I took what I had written so far and showed it to him and he read it with his a therapist and then um, he read it by himself and then read it again with his therapist. Mm. And I said, I won't go any further. I won't put this out here if you don't want me to. Um, but I think we can help other families. And he said, okay. So then I asked my husband and I asked my other son and made sure that they were all okay with it. And then everybody that's been mentioned in the book, they've definitely been all on board and, and with it and just wanting to bring light to the fact that adolescent addiction is real. Yeah, it is really real. And it's, it just seems like it's everywhere. And yet yeah, no, no one's talking about it, like on the ground level, you know? So, right. um, yeah, it's so important. And just to let people know, there's nothing to be ashamed of. You know, if, if our kids had cancer or diabetes or something, we wouldn't be afraid to tell people, you know, they'd have, right. you know, bake sales and stuff for your kid, you know, it's, you know, but if your kid's addicted and struggling in that way, it's uh, sometimes people feel like, Oh God, I better not open my mouth. But you know, maybe more people than people know are struggling with the same exact thing. 
and they're just all right. pretending everything's just fine. <laughs> right. And I'm finding now that with the book out and people knowing more about our story and just even over the past couple of years, you know, people have reached out and, and want, you know, either through Facebook or through a friend of a friend or, you know, one of my clients and they just go, you know, I, I have this issue too. This is what my child is doing. And do you think that you could tell me a little bit about your journey and I'm like, well, funny, I'm writing a book, <laughs> but, um, yeah, absolutely. And it is, it's, um, there's shame for parents because we think, what did we do in our parenting? Um, is, and then there's just the stigma of when you do decide, if, if you do decide to, you have to send them away and, and they want to know, Oh, well, you know, we haven't seen Carson lately. <laughs> what, you know, what's going on? And, and you have to decide then, are you going to just have like a little elevator pitch, mm -hmm. you know, or are you going to go ahead and, and just kind of let it all hang out and be transparent. And mm -hmm. we have learned that transparency can be the key to recovery for Carson. So, mm -hmm. you know, and for most people is that when you are more transparent, mm -hmm. you tend to have a better success at recovery. So yeah. If, if me being transparent on his behalf will help, then yeah. so be it. Yeah, just holding things in for a long time, you know, important big things like this in your life, it takes so much energy just to, oh. to protect it and to not let anyone see it, to, to be masked all the time. So whew, just, yeah, this is what's going on. And then people yep. can, it's exhausting. It is. But if you let people know, you know, a safe group of people or whoever you feel comfortable, then they can be supportive. They can check in. How's everything going? You know, it can really help us as parents. If people, if people know, then they can be more helpful to us, I think. Right. So. Right. You know, I found, um, that a lot, I've spent a lot of time educating on addiction. Like it's not just a child gone rogue or rebelled. It's, right. you know, like when we realized we had a problem, you know, I really have done a lot of educating on the brain and neuroscience and how far they've come. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's in the middle brain. It's not a, a character or a moral decision, a rationalization right. in the frontal lobe and adolescents, they push the envelope. Yeah. They're going to experiment on something. Yeah, that's their job. Yeah, that's their job. Exactly. It's how they learn to become independent. Mm -hmm. And anything risky is usually part of that development. Yeah. And then unfortunately, some of our kids experiment and then they get hooked very quickly. And some people yeah. experiment and they're fine. They don't, they're like, oh, I didn't like that. Or I liked it, but eh, it's not worth it to whatever. But some of our kids just get hooked. I don't know what that is, if it's um, sometimes genetics or maybe they have trauma or they're trying to use the drugs to cover up or to help cope with stuff. But for some reason, some of our kids get hooked. Right. And so Carson did that. And he, I call it, got, he got it bad. He, yeah. when he started experimenting, which he was 14 or 15 with marijuana, and then since he's already a riskier kid and he's the one that would be like, if a bunch of them thought, okay, well, let's pull our money together and go buy Xanax, you know, which are street for, um, they're called Xan bars. And they look like little 
Pezes, if oh. anybody remembers the Pez from our day. And so, and he's the one that'll go, sure, I'll be the one to go buy it. I'll, I'll research it on Snapchat. Or I'll go down to the seedy part of town and get it. And so then he, when he really got that feeling, it, it just really opened the door and it progressed really quickly. Mm-hmm. And he calls himself a garbage can. He's a poly substance user. And so he'll do anything. Now he, he gravitated more towards the benzodiazepines, which are downers like Xanax and Valium and Lorazepam and Ativan and all those. And, Mm. and then he also barbiturates and then, um, opiates and Mm. then, and then he, he ended up on heroin. So he liked, he liked to escape. He said it, and he talks about it gave him such freedom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and it started early and it went quick. Yep. Same thing with Joey. He started we think around 13, maybe 12, 12, 13. And he loved how it made him feel. He was getting bullied. He had some early childhood trauma that we've talked about on this pod a lot of different times. And it was cannabis at first that took that feeling away. And then yeah. cannabis wasn't quite enough. So then he went looking for other stuff. So, yeah, yeah. And it, it happened well, I don't actually know how quickly it happened because he was doing it for about two years before we found out. Mm. So how long was Carson using before you figured it out? Um, well, luckily, luckily, I guess, luckily, he the first time he took, well, he got in trouble with marijuana. Um, now, I have an older son that was at home, so we would smell it around the house, mm. but we didn't know if it was Jackson, uh. the older one. And then he got caught with it, him and a bunch of friends, uh, smoking in our village. And so then from there, not, didn't know about pills until the next year, his sophomore year, Mm -hmm. when he went and bought those Xanax Mm -hmm. and he ended up taking, he was supposed to share them and you couldn't wait. And he took one the first night, but then it continued on. Well, then by the next day, we knew that something was wrong Mm -hmm. and he then probably took anywhere from six to eight and he was high for 48 hours. And by the oh. time we got him into detox at our local recovery hospital, you know, it probably been 60 hours since the first pill. Yeah. And so, um, it was pretty in our face. We could tell mm-hmm. when, especially with the Xanax, cause it changed his personality so much when he was on opiates or he would sometimes drink mm-hmm. when he was in rehab several mm-hmm. times because now I grew up with an alcoholic father, so I know the smell of alcohol. Oh. And I'm like, but it doesn't show up on drug tests. And oh. they didn't breathalyze oh, when he was in. drug test not breathalyzing? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't know why they didn't do that. Mm. Yeah, when he was going to IOP, intensive mm-hmm. outpatient. Mm-hmm. And so I, I caught him a couple times. I'm like, you've been drinking. No, and of course, he denies it, you know, yeah. denies it. Because he's trying to keep that low hum. So it wasn't until later when he was in wilderness we found out he was trying to cover up social anxiety and mm-hmm. in generalized anxiety and but the fear of missing out because he wanted to be with all his friends and mm-hmm. you know and and then it just snowballed out of you know yeah. so then then his body's addicted his yeah. you know he felt like if he didn't have anything he would even go and drink on the way to school he'd drive over to the drugstore and buy some delsum and just drink a whole bottle of Delsum. Oh, the cough medicine. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, 
Yeah. Oh, my kid has done all sorts of crazy stuff, drinking hand sanitizer. They'll just get anything. They'll they'll use whatever substance mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. get that faded feeling where they don't have to deal with whatever anxiety or whatever they're trying to, to not feel. It's really, you know, you got to hand it to them. That's pretty smart. They're trying to they're trying to cope and fix something. Right. It's kind of, it's a survival mechanism. It is. And they're, you know, their brains aren't fully developed yet. And they're making, you know, stupid teenager choices, which right. they don't realize at the time could have lifelong impact. Right. Or life and death impact, as some of his friends found out. Man, you had some really tragic things happening. Yeah. So my oldest son's best friend overdosed in our house. And then mm-hmm. six months later, actually overdosed where he passed away. Yeah. yeah. It was so tragic. There are so many just terrifying parts of your story. <laughs> uh, and then there's, I, I could relate so much to your story about how you as a parent were like, what the hell am I supposed to do now? You know, they, they wouldn't take him at, at the treatment center or they send him home from the ER and they're like, whoa, what am I supposed to do with this kid? He's still high or he's acting irrationally or uh, aggressively and they just send you home with him. Okay. Right. Great. What am I supposed to do now? And calling 911 repeatedly. And, oh, it's just so painful. Our systems are not set up to help these kids Mm. and parents and families in general. It's just such a struggle. It is. And you don't don't know what to do because you, especially when it's the first time and he's leaving the house or trying to climb out of a window or, um, I mean, just or several times, you know, over the course of his high school years. And, and you're like, well, should I sit on him? Should I, what should I do? Do I let him go? Do I let him suffer the yeah. consequences? Well, uh, you know, do you want to call him in as a runaway? Do you, yeah. I don't know. You just keep doing, you just keep doing to save your child. You just do what you think you can do. And right. I, I sometimes think of people, you know, that, that don't have a spouse, like you and I both have spouses that have helped us through all of this. What if you're a single parent or what if you're in poverty? What if you as a parent are hooked on something? I mean, there's just so many, you know, terrible scenarios that our kids just can get lost in. Or what if, what if you are African-American and you do not feel like you can call the cops to come help you? You can't right. call 911 because, you know, that's not comfortable or no. safe, really. So no, uh, I'm with you, Beth, because I think about that all the time. I'm like, now we are just a middle class family. We do have very supportive, extended family and, and friends mm-hmm. that helped for the cost of it. But I, I do. I worry about those that are impoverished mm-hmm. and that can't afford to to send your kid away or that you fear getting help because of you you might get in trouble yourself exactly. because you don't trust those in authority or yeah. African American friends. I just mm-hmm. I hate it. Or CPS will come after you or you know there's so many risks right. involved and oh it's just like a landmines everywhere and you're just trying to figure out I just want my kid not to die. That's you know that's right. all you want is your kid not to die. And help sometimes just seems to be not there in our right. our systems, our healthcare system, our yeah community systems. So oof, that's one thing I'm hoping to just move people a little bit, my tiny little podcast here to, to help people realize 
that change does need to be made to our healthcare system and that we do need to really think about how we're treating people. And I don't know, maybe with just more people thinking about it, thinking about what we can do better, maybe things will start to improve for future generations. I hope so. Right. I agree. I mean, it starts with, you know, it might start in the schools where then they can, social workers at the schools can help start educating the kids. It could start with Mm -hmm. curriculum Mm -hmm. um, and starting early, like, and building on it, like starting with something small in kindergarten and moving on and hitting it hard in fourth grade before they hit, you know, the middle school years. And and talking to kids about not just because drugs are bad and mm-hmm. don't do them, but explain to them why and what it can do and mm-hmm. what's going on and what's going on in your brain mm-hmm. and explaining to them that some of their emotions and how they can deal with their emotions and what does anxiety look like? What does depression look mm-hmm. like? And and how to express your feelings. And so we got to start, we have to start young yes. and, and that's, you know, Things move so fast. Technology moves so fast. Um, and the drugs move so yeah, fast. They and do. They change all the time. Change all the time. Mm. And and it's it's we just it, we just trying to keep up. It's on the education of it all is in our schools and in our homes is just it's it's really really hard. And mm. and and your podcast will help with that because hopefully maybe some educator that knows yes. more about. Cause I'm not a teacher, you know, like de- the developmental brain that can help with this. And- yes. Yeah. Schools need yeah. to get on board. Joey's school was really horrible. They, I'm not sure if they were just um, telling me that they had no idea that there was a drug problem at their school because they didn't want me to sue them, but they just acted completely oblivious. They had no idea and had no solutions, no help. When I asked them about the bullying or, or kind of pressed them about the bullying, say, listen, my kid tried to kill himself because of the bullying at your school. They're like, oh, he just needs a thicker skin. I mean, that's the kind of stuff what? I got. Yeah. Ugh. That's the kind of stuff I got back from them. So I was so disappointed with that. But yeah, the educators, the uh, administrators, you know, all the way down, there's just needs to be more realizing and how prevalent this is. It's such a huge problem, especially with the vaping is so common in the schools. Is it common in um, Indiana too? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole nother issue that. And your son started with marijuana too. And, but then it doesn't take very long for them to go, huh, that's pretty good, but I bet there's even more cool stuff. And I suppose the dealers just try to say, Hey, look, look over here, you can have this too. Mm -hmm. It just escalates. So it's not just the vaping. It's like the vaping opens a big door to God only knows what else. (sighs) Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Because they, I don't know if adolescents, they're like, well, I got away with this and my mom doesn't know, or my dad doesn't know, Mm -hmm. or, you know, my dad's or, you know, or my grandma or my aunt. So, or my teacher, you know, um, and they can hide it so well with the vaping because it doesn't smell and it looks like just like a piece of technology, like a charger or something. People don't right. even know. So it takes a lot of paying attention right now with our kids right now. And um, right. I was not and paying a lot, attention. And a lot, um, I'm, you know, I have enough, a lot of educators and administrators in my family and they say that. A lot of teachers, you know, especially at the elementary age, 
they're not they're not schooled in or educated themselves in trauma or recognizing oh. trauma in children. Oh. And my and my my cousins who are the teachers in the elementary school, they they get it because mm-hmm. of their, you know, where they're teaching and the 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 environment or the the area where they teach is quite impoverished. But you know, there are some that just because kids can hide it so well. Mm-hmm. And because we're not seeing or hearing what kids are saying, like, because they can do it all by their phone. They oh, can text yes. to the kid next to them. So they're not overhearing conversations. So they don't know that. I mean, there's there's all kinds of trauma that these the kids are. I mean, from, you know, divorce to parents in jail or parents that are substance use mm-hmm. abusers as well. And, you know, jail. And it just, there's a whole bunch, a whole bunch of trauma. Yeah. I mean, even just having a sick parent, like I had Mm -hmm. breast cancer in 2016 and I'm like, and my mom passed away right shortly after I was diagnosed. And Mm. I'm like, was that something that triggered it with him? Yeah. Cause that was right around the time. Yeah. I was actually pretty sick right when I think he started too. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I often wonder, you know, I wasn't really there for him for a couple of months. So I don't know. You know, those kids are in such transition when they're adolescents and they're trying to figure themselves out, trying to figure out their identity and they still really need us, but they're trying to get away from us. And it's just such a rough time. And the social media we touched on, that is so different than when we were kids. They can hide stuff from the parents and teachers. They have back rooms. I don't even know what goes on with their social media. As soon as the parents and teachers figure it out, they figured out another way around it. So I know. it's, it's really treacherous out there. I would not want to be growing up right now. I feel bad for these kids. No, no, no. no. We were just still passing notes or we pass yeah. notebooks. And if, yeah. if the notebooks got, you know, confiscated, then you might find out something. Yeah, that's it. And then they'd read your note aloud in class and then, okay. But now it's so underground and secretive. And oh, it's so dangerous. So your son uh, was in and out of treatment centers, rehabs, a bunch of different ERs uh, for mm-hmm. a couple of years, it seemed like, right? Yes. So he did. Um, so his first time was sophomore year. Then the end of his junior year, he spent the whole summer before his senior year in inpatient mm. because at the end of his junior year, he went on a three-week bender. And after he had finished baseball season, and it was that reward, um, he rewarded himself. And he was just going to go and get marijuana. And But someone on Snapchat said, bars for sale. And he went and sold plasma and, and bought them. And then that started a three-week bender. And which landed him in jail. And by this time he's 18 and he's in big boy jail and we let him sit, you know, we're still at the thought process that he's got to hit rock bottom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of that tough love thing, but it's also a boundaries thing. But then eventually it was not a drug charge, which that's good because criminalizing drug use is not helpful. Yeah, I agree. So so he, it was an assault charge on my husband. Mm -hmm. And so our state, um, then the state takes over. So even if we were not to press charges, the state presses charges. Oh. So then we, I had to get a criminal defense attorney and he has just been awesome. And he helped us and got it dropped if he would go back into rehab. And he did that mm-hmm. that summer. 
And then um, he was just finished, you know, because it steps down to partial hospitalization and then Mm -hmm. into intensive outpatient again. And then we got him into a dual diagnosis program. And so Mm -hmm. we're into the fall of his senior year when he was trying. He had one foot in sobriety and he was going to school part time because he just needed three classes. Mm -hmm. He was going to work. He was doing this dual diagnosis program. He admitted that he was an addict this past time because it, it. we thought, oh, this is his rock bottom. He was three days in big boy jail. That would do it for and me. He <laughs> was going to NA meetings. He was mm. going to work and so on and so forth. But at the same time, it was starting to ramp up where he he couldn't keep it together. And so he some he said at that time he got bamboozled in into heroin. Ah, and so he did heroin for a month before he overdosed. Mm. So it he just could not they called the monkey on your back. It just kept chasing him. Yeah. 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 So eventually you found out about wilderness therapy. Right. right. So he went then from ICU he survived and um, with some heart issues and hearing loss, yeah. which he still to this day is hearing impaired and wears hearing aids. Do you think that'll be permanent? It, it will be because it, it, it's an opiate thing. And if it's going to come back, it comes back within the first six to 10 months. Oh. And so it's, it's long gone. He's got a 70% high frequency sensory neural loss, oh. which means female voices mostly. Yeah. So really, he's not just ignoring you. He really can't hear you. <laughs> he really can't hear me. And then he wants to play it off like his hearing aids need to be clean now. No. So I'm like, whatever. So whatever. Stinkerhead. Um, so he went then straight to back to the recovery hospital for round three. And he knew at that time he couldn't come home. Yeah. So his counselors there, they agreed. And they said he needs longer. He needs to get away. He needs to change people, places, and things. And then... The search was on to try to find something, and I would come back to show him, okay, well, family found this on the West Coast, and I mean, we're looking to get him out of state, because even in Southern Indiana, we thought it was too close. Yeah. So he actually found wilderness programs, Hmm. and the ones that he wanted to go to and we applied to, and then ultimately he went to the one in Georgia. He picked Georgia. Okay. And that, that proved to be the way he was able to recover. Yes. So that's pretty it was, amazing. It saved his life. Yeah. So how long was he in wilderness? 12 weeks. 12 weeks. And like, tell people what wilderness is like. I bet a lot of people have no idea what it is or they've heard, but don't really understand what it is. Right. How, so how wilderness therapy, it? it's, it's pretty wild. Some are kind of hybrid where you might li- li- uh, live in a lodge and then you go and do adventure outdoor camping on the weekends. His was a full nomadic. Mm. So they, they were, they never came out, um, unless they were really sick. Um, or there was really super bad weather, like a tornado was. Okay. He was in the Blue Ridge mountains and, um, he was, um, so what they did is he had all his gear that they outfit him with all the same gear and they live and cook and do their homework and their therapies and everything in nature. They sleep under tarps. They learn how to make fire. And it's in a contained atmosphere that they are, whether they know it or not, are getting therapy 24-7. 
they do these, his was called a pathways, a kind of homework. And it, it went through different levels. And, um, and then there's different, you know, they, they learn, they get their confidence back and one, they're getting better sleep. They're getting better nutrition. Mm -hmm. They're getting, um, and not all of them have substance use disorder in, in his group as bad as he did. They all use substances, but some of them, they were struggling with thriving. Um, they were, they were, some of them were finally diagnosed in wilderness and where we did find that he finally had several uh, comorbidity issues and a lot due to the substance use. Like um, the anxiety, is that the... But the, gen the social anxiety, generalized anxiety, mm -hmm. a learning disorder, um, a, and then of course all the different opiate, you know, so we have all the codes yeah. going forward. He can get, if he decides to go to school someday, oh, okay. um, he did graduate from high school Yay. when he was finally got to Utah to sober living. So he, he had finished all his classwork before he left to go to wilderness. Thank God for the vice principal that helped us <sighs> do that. So he actually did graduation virtually, but everybody was, that was yeah. in 20, but so in wilderness, it's then about every three to four days, they would move campsites and they do hikes and they have all these kind of these different quests or journeys or steps, you know, to the next level where they become a mentor or, and it really yeah. built up his confidence. And he, everybody, all his friends used to think of him as a leader and he never stepped up mm -hmm. into the challenge, even in all his sports or any mm -hmm. of that, because he did not feel it inside. He did not feel the confidence inside. And um, so that was another thing. And it just, you just, he stood taller. Mm. And, um, and and then he was, you know, 90 days or plus away from substances. Yeah. I think he was out there a hundred days. And then the longer you're away from substances, your brain can heal and then cognitive change can happen. Mm -hmm. And and you really get that. And you can fail and succeed in the wilderness with learning how to, um, usually a lot of them use bow drilling and which is a way to make fire and, and, you know, and how to sit in it when you can't make fire because you just made like 10 in a row, it's called busting. And, but then you, you'll have a week where you can't bust any huh. and just learning to sit with it or sit with the uncomfortableness of, of being cold and it's not, they, they prepare them so well. And today Carson works for a wilderness program. So he works with adolescent boys, 13 to 17 year olds. He has come full circle. Wow. That's so great. He just believes in it so much. It saved his life. And I was on another podcast with Dr. Will White and he says it's not uncommon for students of wilderness to work in the industry. Yeah. Because they believe in it. It saved their life. Help. It was such life-changing and yeah. character-defining. Well, I think that's wonderful that he's back in it because I think helping other people, you know, pulling other people out of it is so helpful for their own recovery and right. strengthening their own recovery. And thank God for people that are willing to go work in the wilderness. I, know. I, I would not want to do that. That sounds terrible. <laughs> I know. I know. To pee in the woods is I can do it because if I got to go. Yeah. But I'm like, oh my gosh. But they do it all. They just, yeah. and you just get used to living in 
getting back to simplicity, simplicity, being in nature and, and being in nature and just living with less and you can survive without taking a full on shower, you know, like for a week (laughs) and you can do Billy Bass. They call them Billy Bass. And, you know, and it's, it's okay. You can do it. Hmm. It gets down to our primal survival, how we, you know, we've evolved to be such creatures of comfort. It's, yes. It's not, it's not to our benefit. It's to our detriment. Uh, yeah, I agree. Just coming back to basics and uh, take away the phone, take away, of course, the substances and just see what's under there, you know? Right. And, and I bet living out in the wild like that makes them feel so much more confident in themselves and their own abilities. And, and I think it's awesome that he went back in and is helping other kids now. When you first yes, put him in you. there... I, he had to com, uh, comply because he was 18. So he, you couldn't right. just put him there. But when you made that work for him, was he happy with you or did he go kind of grudgingly or he knew he had no other options? He knew he had no other choice. This was, yeah. and this could have been his subconscious screaming for help. Yeah. Like I, I need more too. And I can't, I can't do it on my own because he knew we had told him at the end of that summer before, you know, he overdosed before he went into his senior year of high school, we said, if you start using again, you can't live at home. Yeah. And we knew something was brewing because things were just not adding up. And it was fall break. Mm-hmm. And we have, we were kind of year round school. So we had two weeks fall break and it did. It ended up, he overdosed on his fall break. So he knew the first thing he knew when we sat mm-hmm. at the conference table, when back at a recovery hospital, I said to him, you know, you can't come home. And he goes, I know. Yeah. 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 Yeah, we're at that place with Joey too. So he's figuring it out. But yeah, after a certain point, you just, it's obviously not working for one thing. And the parents just can't keep, uh, you know, we have to have a life too. You know, we want to be, everybody wants to be on a healing path and we all want to be, you know, finding environments that fulfill us and help us to get there. So it's really tough to say, nope, sorry, you can't come back home. But, you know, if it worked at home, it would have worked by now, right? (laughs) Right, exactly. So I just learned a phrase that it probably could be an Al-Anon principle, but I I got it from reading the book called Balm, The Loving Path to Family Recovery. And basically is if your loved one is suffering with substance abuse, Are your actions and are your thoughts and what you're doing, is it contributing to their recovery or is it contributing to their use? Mm -hmm. And sometimes, especially as parents, a lot of times we are just too close and we don't even know we're doing it, but we contribute to their use. And I write about it in the book, like, and, and my thought was... I would give him, you know, $10 to go to McDonald's between school and work. Yeah. Well, he says, I, I spent on heroin towards the end, mom. And, yeah. but I thought he's doing all the good things. Of course. Why can't I reward him? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Did you know that $10 could buy you heroin? I was uh, shocked by that. No. In your book. I thought heroin yeah. would have been much more expensive than that. I thought, okay, you can get weed for 10 bucks, but I think they can get anything for any amount right now. Oh Yeah. I mean, it could be just enough, a couple snorts, yeah. you know, kind and, of thing. And it's probably cut with all sorts of horrible things and fentanyl. And you just don't know what they're getting when they're buying off the street like that. It's no. crazy. 
Oh my goodness. What tools did you use to keep yourself sane and alive through this whole horrendous episode? Well, why we were chasing him, not a bunch because I mean, everybody did know because he was out of school that first three weeks. And so till it came to another big crisis, we kind of kept it under wraps. Uh Thanksgiving and Christmas of his junior year, family was starting to figure it out. Like, hmm. Mm, He's acting weird. And um, yeah. And Mm so basically we kept it to ourselves. We would talk in when he was in the rehab and we would do family group. We would definitely talk through it. Mm -hmm. You know, I talked to my closest best friends, but I even kept stuff from my parents because I couldn't battle them and battle him at the same time because they were still at the mindset and because most of us were that he had a choice. Yeah. It's a character issue and he's just not strong enough in his willpower. Yeah. The willpower and the discipline. Yeah. They can't. I mean, he had unlocked the the door to the monster. Yeah. It's a, a very strong thing that happens in your brain. And they, I mean, if you talk to anyone that has tried to diet and says, okay, today I'm not going to eat blank. And then they do. Okay. Well then you understand, right? It's the same exact thing. I'm sure your son wasn't like, let me try to destroy my life. He was just like, Hmm, I need something to calm me down or be able to go out to this, whatever. And I need, I need something. So let me go get something. And then it just kind of, piles on and piles on and then you are at wilderness and thank goodness that you found something that helped him though and to get so recovered how long of sobriety does he have now in october it was two years (gasps) wow that's a nice long so now part of recovery is slips or relapse Yep. yep and so not to tell the end of the story but it happens. I'll just leave it at that. Mm-hmm. So when he was in sober living, he had a slip. Mm-hmm. We'll just leave it at that. Yep. And, and then you can read about it in the book. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it it really it hurt. It, it hurt him hard. Um, yeah. He was devastated, and that's how the impulsivity is. And he yeah. has still had some issues when he's been in programming that wasn't substance, but he he has realized what his impulsivity is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So he can kind of watch himself. And if he starts going down that path, go, whoa, is he able to stop himself now? Or is it more like watching um, himself go over the edge? <laughs> he, it says he gets to his tunnel vision mm-hmm. and he, he just had something. He impulsively bought something that he knew he couldn't afford. And when he told me, and he usually tells me about it and I started crying because I was just gotten over COVID. He got over COVID. He hadn't worked. He had missed a shift. And, and I'm like, I would rather you go and spend that money on boots that you said you needed for the field. And, and it was so shocking to him that he, by the time I called him back, cause I was just going to text him. I just couldn't talk to him. I was just distraught. Mm-hmm. And cause I thought it's going to affect us because he's going to need money. And he finally, we just called him back and FaceTime. And he was, it, it caused him to go and return that item. He was in the car going and returning that item. Nice. And I think with that, that caused him to feel better because in the end, what happens is he feels bad. And so it's kind of like trading addictions. He felt bad because then he doesn't have money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know? But he liked the item and it's, he says it's this impulsivity, this tunnel vision. 
and I just do it until I, I can't stop. And then, and then I feel bad. Yeah. It's, it's same thing. It's that reward center thing that yeah. he's got to start, you know, still having, needing coping and, and mind you, he's still 20. Right. So there, we've got that. Still growing their frontal lobe and executive function is not really. Right. And he's still learning to adult on his own. So. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. Oh, our kids. It's so hard. It's so hard for them. What advice would you give to a parent of a 11 year old that, what would you have done differently? Oh, what I would have done differently because social media came into play. They didn't get smartphones until they were like 15 graduating eighth grade. So mm -hmm. we went to a K through eight school. Um, I would have been, and I don't know if I could have, but now you can be more schooled in what they're, what they're watching on, you know, it just ask for the phone. Don't be afraid to shut it off, have it charge in your bedroom because we were kind of growing with social media and smartphones together. You know, it was their alarm clock. Yep. Shouldn't have never done that. Yeah. Yep. Um, computers. They all paid for their own computers and I let them have computers in the room. Shouldn't have let that happen. Yeah. Um, it should be in a common area. Um, mm -hmm. I know they have laptops now or iPads for school. Um, and it is it's going to get harder, but start early of keeping it separate or, okay, you need to turn in your laptop, turn it in for charging into the into parents' room is one of the biggest things. Because I was totally, or we were totally enmeshed in his life with sports and youth group and all that. I would say the biggest thing is the social media and the smartphones. Yeah. Is Because that's how the drug dealers get to them. And that's how they manage to, you know, hatch these plans with their friends. And, right. oh, Lordy. I understand that Snapchat is the worst one. Is that your It experience? is because things can go away. Yeah. And, and, they, and they find, like you said, they're sneaky. They... They'll have their own little codes or little emojis or whatever. And that goes over our head. And they'll have fake accounts. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Once you figure one thing out, they'll create another to keep stuff away from you. But yeah, if you're paying the bill for that phone, you know, you get to decide who gets right. to. And you get to pass codes. You get to, if you can figure out now there's programs for mirroring everything that they do. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot more out there than even when. My kids were had started with all this. Yeah, um, it just continues to grow. Yeah, and keep the conversation going. And this is why, and explain to them what it does to the brain. And because we started out wrong, we were started out with just don't do it. And I, I was probably pretty heavy handed at, as in kind of a lot of yelling. We started out that way, thinking that would mm -hmm. you know evoke change, and yeah. it doesn't. No, not usually. Yeah. So just conversation, probably starting really young about oh, yeah. saying no to things or any, and I think kids need to know that, yeah, the drugs will make you feel really good. I think that's important for them to know. And it will really destroy your life because it feels so good. You're going to want more and then it's going to be hard to stop. Right. So you can have my book on hand for when it gets time because a lot of adolescents are reading it right now. Yeah. I, bet. I think they, it won't happen to them. Yes. I know. I thought that as a parent, I thought my, and my kid, by the way, was in baseball too. He was a pitcher and reminded me of mine's a catcher. Yeah. And I just was like, 
he would never jeopardize his baseball. He would never use drugs. I thought that would keep him safe. Nope. So gosh, I am so happy though that Carson is on the healing path and he is helping other kids. I think that's so positive and I'm so glad for you. And you have your other son in college too, I think, right? Yep. He's in college as well. And he, um, he's had his share of experimentation and messing around with That's the thing is the drugs are so hard today and they're not fearful of the hard drugs. So even my older son has messed around with hard drugs Mm. and we talk about it openly that, you know, I've said to Jackson is his name. I've said to him, like, you might not have the gene that's like Carson Mm -hmm. where it's all or nothing Mm -hmm. and poly substance, but the things are so dangerous right now out there that you can one become physically dependent on Mm -hmm. it. So then you'll still have to withdraw from it, but also you don't know what's in the product. Mm -mm. I mean, you just don't, it's just so dang. We talk about it a lot. Yeah. I just had a friend, their daughter died uh, with a fentanyl overdose. They didn't know what was in it, you know? It's no, so it's, risky. It is definitely, it's fentanyl poisoning because they didn't No, Well, nobody intends to overdose unless unfortunately it's suicide. Yeah. Um, but this person you know. was not trying to overdose. They were trying to just do a really small amount of heroin just to, you know, just a little. And they were trying to do it a safer way, but it was, it had fentanyl in it. And kids, you have no idea what has fentanyl in it and what doesn't. So uh-uh. it's so risky out there. So just, oh God, be careful. And I know. read Dawn's book, have your kids read Dawn's book and see what can actually happen to families. Drugs are a destructive force, that's for sure. They are. And it disease for adolescents progresses quickly. Yes. I read that in your book. What do you remember the stats on that? So here's the thing. Here's what it says. Although the addiction process is similar for adults and adolescents, it happens more quickly for teenagers. If substance abuse begins in adulthood, it can take eight to 10 years for an individual to reach chronic stages of dependency. If the onset is during adolescence, it can take less than 15 months. Mm. And that is through by um, Dick Schaefer, and he wrote the book, Choices and Consequences, mm. and which is a, a really good book. Yeah, that's, that's just really terrifying because your kids, yeah, to make things easier to be addicted in, in adolescence, that's just like, oh, no, <laughs> that's a bad combo. Oh, my goodness. Right. Is there anything else you wanted to say or... Anything we missed? Just be easy on yourself as parents because we are, we all are doing, we're navigating this world as best we can Mm -hmm. and just keep the lines of communication open and educate yourself Mm -hmm. on the science of addiction and just keep the conversation going. Yeah. Continue the conversation. And how can they get a hold of you? They can get a hold of me through www.com adolescentaddictionandrecovery.com. Nice. You made that before your book, right? Or alongside your book? Alongside my book. It's a blog because I figure, you know, we'll, let's continue the conversation. Yeah. And yeah. So, so find Dawn on her website. Go read her book, Chasing Carson, A Family's Journey Through Adolescence Addiction and Recovery. Thank you so much for sharing your story and Carson's story. Tell him thank you and tell him we wish him all the best. Uh, in his Thank you. And journey. I feel the same for Joey. I'm, I'm praying for him daily. Thank you so much. I appreciate that so much. And thank you to all the listeners and your support of our podcast and our kids. And we're all just trying to make this world a little bit easier for everybody. 
to make it through. So uh, make sure and share this episode. If you know any families who might be struggling with addiction, uh, with a teen that might benefit from wilderness, maybe they hadn't thought of it. This would be a great episode to share with them. And you can find Safe Home Podcast on all this, all the places, all the social media. Also, we have the pods on YouTube if that's a little easier for some people than navigating podcast apps. So thank you, everybody. I appreciate it. And let's all stay Stay safe. safe.